Two verses I'd like you to take a gander at. The last two, verses 25 and 26. That's all there is. Is that not right in chapter 9? Okay. Good. Well, that's a good Bible. Here's what I'd like you to do. If you have a Bible, and if you don't, don't worry. We'll be with you in a second. But if you have a Bible, would you take a look at Jeremiah uh, chapter 9, those two verses, the final two. 25, 26, and I would like for you to um, ask questions uh, that those two verses give rise to in your mind. Is there anything in there that you would like to have answered, discussed, uh, that you find perplexing? Now, there's no guarantee that they will be satisfying answers. I just want to give you a chance to take a look at the text a little closer and ask, Tom? Sure. That is a great question. Now, I'm going to use Tom's question as an illustration of what I mean. Tom's question was, and it's super, what does it mean when it says circumcised yet uncircumcised? I mean, which is it? So that's a great question. Bill? Yeah, but Bill, here just a second. We're just looking for questions now. I shall provide the answers. <laughs> See, so here's how we do it, Billy. You ask the questions. I make up. I mean, I provide. You're correct, brother, and that helps a lot. But for and we'll we'll get to all of this. But for now, I just want to kind of prime the pump a little bit. So, what else is in the in there? That uh, yes, ma'am. Okay, this is a super... Now, when I read it, just like you, here's the question. What is the problem of the clipping of the hair? The th- I mean, is God, is, is he like in the hairstyle business all of a sudden? I mean, what is great? I, when I read it, the same thing occurred to me. What is the deal? Good. Okay, now here's another question. Where is there anything in there that says anything about hair? Now... If you are using the King James Version or the New King James Version, both of which are super excellent, thank God for the translators and that you have it. So I'm not criticizing anything. I'm just going to tell you the translators of the King James Bible, where it talks uh, in verse 26 about inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples, they render it different. Is something about living in the corners, farthest corners. So the translators of the King James uh, have translated it, farthest corners of the land. Others have rendered it, corners of the hair, the head. It's a huge difference. Um, So did I hear someone ask me what I think the preferred translation is? Did I, thank you so, um, it is not the one rendered by the King James Version. There's very little biblical linguistic language basis for that rendering. It's about hair. So why do I say that in, in grimace? Because I know that translation is so near and dear to, uh, the hearts of so many, and it ought to be and can continue to be. I'm just trying to tell you since 
the King James Version was translated scholarship. Think about it. Over the last few hundred years has improved enormously. We have many more manuscripts discovered, uh, linguistic uh, skills and facility. So when the King James Version was translated, it was remarkably well done based on what they had. We have much more. So um, it's actually about hair. It is about those inhabiting the desert, but it's about clipping the hair on their temples, the corners of their hair, not the corners of the land in which they lived. We ran that in the first class tomb. They were equally as distressed and uh, all the rest. But anyway, Billy, do you have something there? Um, uh, (laughs) So, for the sake of, of time... And in sheer and utter hope of the rapture coming any moment now, let's move on. Look, I just... There is no translation that is absolutely uh, the best in all respects. Each translation has strengths and weaknesses. I just need to tell you that. So so the, the King James Version is is a phenomenal work. It's, it's wonderful. If, if that's the translation you read out of, please continue. Um, it's weak in some areas. The, the rendering is just, not, is just not borne out by the manuscript evidence. There is not one thing, however, uh, in any good translation that calls into question a matter of fundamental doctrine. Nothing. You see right here. Even if we have two different points of view, is it the far corners of the land or is it the corners of your hair? It's not going to affect your salvation. So with respect to matters of salvation, the good translations you have, uh, New International Version, New American Standard, King James Version, New King James Version, uh, the English Standard Version, these good translations, you're on very, very safe ground. Don't let me discourage you in any way. Yeah, oh, please. Well said, Bill. Just read it. Absolutely. Just read it. Well said. Good. Good, good, good. Uh, Bill, in the future when there's something you want to say, it's not required that you stand up. Just. Okay. Is there anything else in those two verses? So, so far we have a question about circum, how can you be circumcised yet uncircumcised? And then this very good question about the whole hair thing. What does it mean? Is there anything else that, yes, sir? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, I do. <laughs> yes, sir. Very well said. Yes, that's what I think he's saying. And we'll, we will develop that, but I don't think I'll, I'll do it as good as you just summarized it. Excellent. Brother Charles? Uh, in Philippians, Paul said, what sort of beauty has it? They 
Nice. Great application. Thank you, brother. Okay, it looks to me. Yes, Doreen. Yes, that's excellent. Now, are you getting that in your Bible or is that the common? Oh, you have the living Bible? Yeah, that's right. And that's that's excellent and very, very helpful. Do you you know a paraphrase is is kind of different than a translation? A paraphrase is uh, a skillful person. And surely the um, the. team that put together the Living Bible are very skillful. What they're doing is actually explaining the text to you. They're not quite stating it. They're explaining it. So you have a wonderful explanation of the text. For serious Bible study, you'll want a translation, however, not not, not just a paraphrase. Okay. You want the words to speak for them for themselves. So um, talk to me later if you're unsure about that. Yes. Yes. Well said. Really excellent. By the way, see that kid right there? I've known her since she was a little brat. Yes, that's true. And you still are. (laughs) To me, you are. But she has grown to be a beautiful young lady who loves the Lord. And you make such a good observation. Um Notice the contrast Uh, in verses 23 and 24. God is saying nothing matters but knowing me. Uh, Wisdom, might, riches, you can make that your area of boastfulness, if you will. But what what really, really, really ought to please you, intrigue you, what you ought to value more than anything is that you're in a covenant bond with me, that you understand and know me, specifically that I'm the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. Now, in contrast to that, the simplicity of being in a covenant relationship with God, you have now in verse 25 and 26, folks uh, who are religious but removed from a personal relationship with this God. So, days are coming. It's a specific reference to the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians coming to um, make conquest of Israel. Days are coming, declares the Lord. I will punish all who are circumcised, yet uncircumcised. And our brother gave such a good explanation. Uh, You can be circumcised in the flesh, uncircumcised in the heart. Circumcision is a very wonderful rite or ceremony that God gave the uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a sign. It means nothing in and of itself. What it signifies is everything. It's a sign of being in covenant relationship with him. However, If someone merely participates in that ceremony, but has a heart far removed from God, it's as if they are uncircumcised. So they can be circumcised physically, uncircumcised spiritually. Can you think of a parallel in our uh, faith experience, another ceremony that could be the... 
Yes, baptism. That, that is exactly right. Baptism in and of itself is absolutely meaningless. It takes on tremendous meaning. It becomes a holy observance with regard to what it signifies. But if all that is happening is that one is getting wet, but that one's heart is still far from the Lord, then it's the same thing as here. Baptized yet unbaptized. So sometimes people think, uh, maybe there's a shortcut for me. I'm not feeling good about my lifestyle, but I don't want to change my lifestyle. Therefore, maybe I can go to that church and request baptism. Perhaps through some magic, it will change me. It will put me in right stead with God. I have no intent to change my lifestyle. Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not really interested in what God would have me do. I just want some quick fix. So for a lot of people, baptism is sort of like that, kind of a religious hocus-pocus, kind of a magical, well, I got baptized and nothing happened. I hear this a lot. I was baptized and nothing happened. What did you expect to happen, I ask? I don't know. I just expected for, I don't know, just to be carried away, just to be free of challenges in life, just to have it easy, just not to be tempted. And I said, no, 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 that's not baptism. That's called death. <laughs> so when you die, it's all over. You bet. Yeah. I just not like that. It, when one is truly baptized, a lot happens. Uh, the Lord Jesus delights in it. Delights in it. Because you give him a gift. It's a gift of public identification in which you say, I'm not ashamed to belong to him. Name me, in fact, by him. Call me a Christ one. That's my name. I am a Christian. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for saving me. It has tremendous value that way. Otherwise, it's just like circumcision here. Do you know that the people of the day in which Israel, ancient Israel lived, many people groups practiced circumcision. It was not uncommon. So it was not it that had any inherent value it was a new signification that God attached to it. Now he was saying, this is a sign of the fact that I have entered into covenant with you. Uh, but the other nations also practiced it, and so you see them listed. Egypt and Judah. So what's Judah? It's part of Israel. Sometimes you use the term Israel for Judah and Israel. Sure. But Judah would represent like the southern tribes of Israel and Israel, the northern tribes. Um, Jerusalem, the capital, is in the territory of Judah. You know what's what's really bad? Do you notice how Judah is sandwiched in between Egypt and Edom? Oh, my goodness. God says, um, I'm going to distinguish you from all the other nations. You do not deserve it. You're not the greatest. In fact, you're the weakest. You're not the best. 
You may, in fact, be the worst. But by grace, I'm going to identify myself with you. I'm going to choose you as a peculiar and particular people for my glory. And I'm going to put you in a particular place called the land of Canaan. And through you, I'm going to effect for the world a particular plan of salvation. Through you shall come a Savior. And he shall offer salvation to all the people groups of the world. And Israel says, wow, no thank you. We would rather be like all the other nations. We do not want to be distinguished from the other nations. We want to be like all the other nations. So when we go to this land of promise, you're offering us the land of Canaan. We are not going to be distinct. We're going to be the same. And instead of influencing the people of the land, we will allow the people of the land to influence us. Instead of introducing them to you, we will let them introduce us to false gods, their gods. And so God says, I think he grieves in his heart, well, then I shall list you for judgment along with all the other nations. When you are given great spiritual privilege and squander it, then sadly, you subject yourself to judgment just like everybody else. It's a sad thing when a Christ one, redeemed, when one recognizes his or her lostness and recognizes the Redeemer, you can only do that when he's opened your eyes. So when he has revealed himself to you, taken you up, taken you on, taken you in. And then you at some point say, wow, but I want to live like unsaved people. It saddens the father. But then the father says, then you shall experience the throes of life in the same fashion in which unsaved people do. Sad thing. It was a real slap in Judah's face. Egypt and Edom were her enemies. And now she's listed right along with them like there's no difference. So they all practiced circumcision. What's the big deal? The Jewish people took pride in their circumcision. It was just a sign of something substantive. They got rid of the substance. It's like baptism. Have you been baptized? You can boast about it. You can be arrogant about it. It's meaningless except for what it represents. And if you reject what it represents, then it's meaningless. It's meaningless. So you have Egypt and Judah and Edom, Ammon and Moab. By the way, those three people groups are would be located in modern-day Jordan. Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Those three people groups settled in what we call today modern-day Jordan. Interestingly, um, Sharon's going tomorrow with a group to France. And right now, uh, we have a group on their way to, um, well, they're probably there. They left Friday to Jordan. We're reading about it here, and we have people from this church there. It's a blessing. And they've gone to be living proof of a loving God in Amman, Jordan. Uh, And the Ammonites lived in Amman, ancient Amman, Jordan. So the Ammonites lived in the northern part of Jordan, the Moabites in the middle, and the Edomites 
south. So those are the people groups um, mentioned over here. And then it says, and all those inhabiting the desert. Well, that's a phrase meaning nomadic Arab people groups. Why is that in there? Once again, God said, Israel, I will set you apart for my own possession and my own glory. Israel wants to just meld in with everybody else. And so God says, okay, then I will judge you just the way I judge everyone, including even nomadic Arabs, those inhabiting the desert, specifically those who clip the hair on their temples. Okay, so here we get to your stuff. Oh, yeah, I caught you talking. Here we get to, to your excellent question. What is that all about? Is God in the hairstyle business all of a sudden? Does it matter to him, the length of our hair? No. Um, in that day, idol worshipers were distinguished in various ways. Those who worshiped false gods instead of the true God took on various external points of identification, and this was one. It was the way they cut their hair. They cut off their sideburns. It wasn't just a short cropped hair. They rounded the edges. There were no vertical, horizontal lines. They rounded. It's kind of like putting a bowl, like in the old days we used to do, do those haircuts. That's, that's kind of how they did it. So is God legislating against that particular hairstyle? Is that concerned about it? Not exactly. He's concerned about his people being identified with idol worshipers, and the hairstyle was the point of identification. Therefore, God prohibited that hairstyle uh, for his people. So take a look at Leviticus chapter 19, just one verse. Leviticus 19, verse 27. In Leviticus 19, verse 27, there are all various and sundry prohibitions which are a little hard for us to understand. Here's one. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. So the very hairstyle that we're reading about in Jeremiah, characteristics of certain people groups, God said in Leviticus, you cannot do that, Israel. Don't do the rounding off. Now, because of that, some of my people, Orthodox Jewish people, you've seen them, um, grow very long, curly sideburns. We call them peyote. Peyus is singular. Peyote is plural. And it simply means curls, side curls. And they do that based on this passage which we just read in Leviticus chapter 19. So what they've done is made a literal application of this particular text, which leads me to this. A very helpful principle of biblical interpretation. There are many, but here's a very simple and helpful one I want to suggest to you. When you read the Bible, you have to distinguish between biblical practices and biblical principles, two different things. Here's what I mean. Some biblical practices are temporary. 
All biblical principles are permanent. This is a biblical practice, hairstyle. But it's temporary. Why do I say that? I say it because if today someone had this hairstyle, and many do. I mean, I go to a place, I get a haircut for five bucks, um, and uh, there are other guys in there, some of them younger than me, and they get the razor deal, and everything is like cut off. So are they in violation of this? Absolutely not. And when when I see a guy like that with that kind of haircut, I'm not concluding he's an idol worshiper. I'm concluding he's a young guy who likes to have all that stuff done to his head. I'm just concluding that's the style that he prefers. So the biblical practice is temporary. It doesn't mean the same thing today. It meant then. But what's the biblical principle? Let me ask you. What might be a biblical principle or principles behind this practice, which we've read about in Leviticus, uh, that Israel was not supposed to take part of? What's a biblical principle? Any, any idea? No wrong answers, I promise you. That is good. Don't identify yourself with those people who are anti-God. Don't identify with people worshiping false gods. That is exactly the right answer. So you see, that biblical principle, that never comes to an end. But the practice does. But today there are other ways in which we may be identifying too closely with other people. Maybe we wear certain things we shouldn't be that make us look like others. I, I don't know. See, that's the biblical. Let me get close to home. Um, I notice that most of the ladies here have short hair, most, and that I think not one is wearing a head covering. I may be wrong about that because my eyes ain't too good, but I don't think there's a lady in the house whose head is covered. But the Bible says you're supposed to have long hair and never be in corporate worship with your head uncovered. That's what Paul said in Corinthians. Now I'll tell you what you ladies are telling me in being here today with shorter hair and with your heads uncovered. You're telling me that you're good students of the Bible. You may not think of yourself that way, but you essentially have interpreted the Bible correctly because somehow you know that prohibition which Paul wrote about in Corinthians, doesn't apply. Somehow you know that, because you're not doing it. What did it mean? Well, in those days, if a woman entered into corporate worship with short hair and sat down and didn't have a head covering, it's as if she's carrying a sign which says, "Um, I am married, but I'm not going to act like it. In fact, I'm on the prowl. I'm looking around for a better deal. That's essentially what she would be saying. Now, Paul was saying, you must not do that. There's a biblical principle. When you come into worship, do not call undue attention to yourself. We want to attend undistractedly to Almighty God. You're parading yourself around as if you're available. 
This is not a matchmaking service. We render an offering of worship to Almighty God. You can look good, you can be fashionable, but don't dress in such fashion that it calls uh, uh, people to be distracted from worship and to focus on you instead. Now, that's a biblical principle that continues to this very day. But the practice doesn't apply. We don't think that a lady with short hair is necessarily flirtatious just because she has short hair, but that was what it meant then in the style. So can you see how it's a good principle? It'll get you in trouble if you don't get this. Otherwise, you're going to extract things from the Bible and think you're supposed to live by it, and then you're going to use it as a badge of pride and hold it up against others who are not doing who are not doing those things. The principles apply, but not necessarily the practices. Let me give you another one. Please raise your hand. How many people here, before you came to church today, went out into your backyard and made a makeshift altar of sacrifice and offered an unblemished male bull on it and set it on fire? How many? Could you, let's see. Count. Raise your <clears throat> I mean... And I'll tell you why. You didn't do it because you're good students of the Bible. You know the biblical principle remains. What's the principle? There must be a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who suffered and died and sat down. He paid in full. Therefore, the principle always remains, I need blood atonement to cover my sin Jesus bled and died for me. The principle continues. So we always make recourse to his cleansing blood. Always, always, always. But the practice doesn't exist anymore today. We don't sacrifice animals. So I've had people say, oh, it's in the Bible. Yeah. And it's in the Bible to be interpreted, handled in the context in which it is found in the Bible. One more illustration. A, a lady uh, one time ago criticized me for worshiping on Sunday. Um, she is a member of a different uh, um, faith group. They worship on the seventh day of the week. Saturday, not Sunday. She said, shame on you, especially you being a Jew. You've turned your back on the Sabbath, and now you're one of those, she called it, Sunday worshipers. In her particular group, Sunday worshipers have, I don't know if you knew this, have the mark of the beast on them. Yeah, that's the teaching of, the, of that particular group. So that's a dear lady with some real sincerity and passion who doesn't know what she's talking about. Could I tell you when you are observing the Sabbath? I will. When you rest from any human attempt to cover up the nakedness of your own sin, when you rest from any self-effort to win God's favor, to get him to turn away from your sin, when you rest from it, when you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are observing the Sabbath. So in the Old Testament, you have the Sabbath. How did that come about? God fashioned the physical universe for six days and then took a look at it, said it's very good, and then rested. He said that's the Sabbath. First, there is physical creation and rest. It's just a foreshadowing of what's 
the ultimate truths behind it. Now you get to new covenant. Now there is spiritual redemption and rest. Jesus said, it is finished. So the New Testament says, labor so as to enter into Sabbath rest. It's not talking about Saturday. It's saying work hard at not working for your salvation. That's going to be your human tendency. Labor, work hard to know there's nothing you can do to merit it. Instead, enter into Sabbath rest. Jesus is your Sabbath rest. So that means you can worship on Tuesday morning as well as you could on Saturday or even Sunday. It isn't a day anymore. The New Testament says to one man, this day is important to another is that. You know what it says? These things are Colossians. Check it out. These things are a mere shadow. But the substance is Christ. So the principle remains a work and then rest. Jesus did the work and invites me to rest. But the um, symbol of it Saturday is the Sabbath. Why do you think Jesus says um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? The Sabbath is made to serve you. It, wasn't set, it doesn't continue on as a specific day. So anyway, here's my point. There's a big difference between biblical practices and bi- biblical principles. So I get asked this question all the time. What about tattoos? Because I can see in this room, so many are just tattooed to the max. <laughs> Generally speaking, um, it's 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 a practice that um, sometimes younger people uh, follow, or so on. Now you're gonna you may run me out of town here. The Bible does not command us against getting a tattoo. It does say in Leviticus, don't do it, but it's the same context as what I just read to you. The folks in that day who got tattoos were idol worshipers. The tattoo was not, neither right nor wrong. In that day, being tattooed labeled you as an idol worshiper. It doesn't today. A tattoo today could label you as an unwise person, <laughs> as a person who needs a hobby or whatever. So it may be unwise today to get a tattoo, But it is not a violation of a biblical commandment. On the other hand, though it's a matter of Christian liberty, I want to suggest to you some principles by which we can exercise our liberty as Christians and make good decisions. Here's one. All things are lawful for me. Yes, you can get a tattoo. All things are lawful for me. There's no biblical law against it. But not all things are lawful profitable. You have to ask yourself the question. Nobody has to preach to you. We don't live by a a bunch of rules and regulations. We live in relationship to the God we love. You have to say, oh God, how will this profit me? Now you may come to a different conclusion than me. Work the system. Here's another one. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Yeah, you can get a tattoo, but generally if you get one, you want another. You get another, you want another. Next thing you know, your whole body is. Now, that may be okay with you. I'm just trying to tell you the potential to get hooked is really, really great. Therefore, why chance it? 
Here's another biblical principle. Do all things for the glory of God. Ask yourself, God, how will this glorify you? I know I want to do it, but how will it glorify you? Now, don't misunderstand. You may come up with a different answer. You may say it will glorify you because it will give me a point of identification with the people I want to reach. And I would say I'm for you 100%. I'm just telling, I'm not telling you what your answer is to be. I'm just telling you what your question is to be. God, how will this glorify you? Here's another one. Don't cause another brother to stumble. If God called me into a ministry with more marginalized people, less mainstream than you, I'd probably dress more like them and even consider, uh, fashion perhaps even including tattoo, there's no likelihood that I'm ever going to show up on Sunday wearing one here. Why? Weaker brother principle. Because too many of you will be freaked out. (laughs) Well, why would I want to do that over something as foolish as a tattoo? So so there's biblical decision-making we have to go through. Now, isn't this the beauty of growing in the Christian life? When you're a young and immature child, parents say, do it. Why? Because I said so. But as the child grows to adulthood, the parent hopes that the value system which they taught the child will be internalized so that they don't have rules imposed on the outside. They're responding from the inside to the upbringing they got, and that's how it is in the Christian life. So in the Old Testament, that's infancy, folks. That's why you got all the rules. Don't cut your hair. Don't get tattoos. Don't do this. Don't do that. And uh, and later on you get into the New Testament and you get principles. Principles, not rules. Principles. Does it glorify me? Does it please me? Does it edify? Does it cause another to stumble? Does it get you hooked? Those are principles. I, come to a, I may come to a different conclusion than you. I know some Christians who don't watch TV. They got rid of their TVs. They work the system. Cool. Uh, I do have a, uh, a, a TV. I hope they don't hold that against me. Uh, it's either matters of Christian liberty. We come. That's what it is when you grow in Christ. If it's just someone telling you what to do, you're not growing in Christ. You're just religious. You're just rules oriented. Instead, you want to say, "Oh God, what would be pleasing to you? What would not be pleasing to you?" So this is a huge, huge. I give you one illustration, and we, uh, we'll leave. If you want to. This was years ago. It was a Wednesday night. I went into the auditorium early. A man in the church who's no longer um, with us, a great guy, loves the Lord, came to me, said, Stuart, I'm very upset. See that young boy up there? I need you to go up there and tell him to remove his baseball hat. I told this man I appreciate his interest in proper respect being shown in a worship environment, and it was legitimate. But I told him, I'm not going to tell that young boy to remove his hat, and I'll tell you why. I know him. He's about 17, 18. He has nothing anymore. His father abandoned him and his mother and younger siblings. His mom's a cocaine user. He just got thrown out of school. He's been coming around here the last few weeks. He's desperate. He's looking for the dad he no longer has. He needs help beyond himself. He has no hope. He doesn't know what to do. Something in him is telling him he may find it here. 
I can go up to him and I assure you I'll win the battle to get his hat off. I can be tough. I assure you I'll get it off. But I will lose the war for his heart. He will not come back. Therefore, I told this man, I'd rather offend, have you be offended because you're going to heaven than him be offended and find some other group that gives him lies instead of truth. Well, when I grew up, he said, see, that's personal standard. When I grew up, that's not how he grew up. We were taught, we were told, you go to church, you dress this way, you wear it. Good, that's all legitimate. Just don't lay that trip on me. That is not a biblical standard. That's a personal standard. There's a difference between a personal standard and a biblical standard. And when you raise personal standards to the level of a biblical standard, you are a legalist. And you're going to run off a 17-year-old desperate for Christ because he's not dressed the way you want him to be dressed. He has to first get clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How's he going to do that? Make an issue over a baseball cap? You understand? What, oh, that just gets me. Well, then you're too mad. See, you're, you're missing the point. You're, you're confusing biblical practices and biblical principles. You think, in fact, your personal practices have the level of biblical authority. No, they don't. There's liberty for the Christian to make decisions in these areas that the Scriptures do not specifically speak to. So I have this biblical decision-making grid one time we'll talk about it in more in detail. And these are some of the principles. All things are lawful for me. You'll never find me drinking. I'm afraid. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered. I come from a family of folks mastered by alcohol. I was. I'm not going to drink. Um, you'll... You'll never find me um, in a car alone with a woman, another woman, any other woman. Never, never, never. I could. It's almost ridiculous to have that standard. Too bad. Personal standard. Don't cause a weaker brother to stumble. Yeah, I saw one of the ministers of our church in a car with. They don't know what the circumstances are. Therefore, they'll never see it. So, so you see what... They, and I'm not laying those trips on you. I'm just saying you, this is a biblical decision-making, decision-making kind of a grid. You know what God is saying? Uh, I love you. I chose you. I adopted you. I call you my child. Don't you want to please your dad? Don't be afraid of me. Love me. Don't you want to say, oh God, I would delight in doing this and doing that, but God, what would you delight in? <laughs> God, I'm free to do this. You don't say I shouldn't do it. Sure. But what would really please you? Am I not just pleasing myself? Don't you think that's a more mature approach to relationship than I'm bound out of fear, rules, and regulation? That's not the way it works. That is not the way. Okay, <clears throat> so that is Jeremiah 9. A Lord willing, Jeremiah 10 is what we'll do next week. The theme is the very pleasant topic of idolatry. <laughs> so let me just give you something to think about before we gather together.
is it possible to commit idolatry today? I mean, nobody's making images, plaster, Paris, you know, things that we bow down to. So how does all that stuff, what's an idol? Is it possible to worship an idol today? If so, what is an idol? That's what we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. We love you. You've taken the first step in loving us. That's why we love you back. You've taken the first step in everything good. In fact, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We're your kids. You're our dad. We are constrained, Lord Jesus, not by undue fear and not by rules and regulations. We are constrained by a heart of love for you. What would please the Father? That's the best way to make decisions. Help us to do so. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you, folks.